Last week we focused our attention on Mark 7, 24-30 and Jesus' interaction with the Syrophoenician woman from Tyre. And I mentioned in that message that this story takes place within the larger context of Jesus' Gentile mission. And as we saw last week, this, this story has definite racial and ethnic overtones. For instance, when the woman comes and she falls at Jesus' feet and she pleads with him to cast the demon out of her daughter, Jesus first ignores her and then responds in Matthew's version, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when she would not be dissuaded, he said again, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now, we explored last week the reason Jesus responded in this way. I believe that he was wrestling with her. He was drawing forth from her a faith that says, like Jacob when he wrestled with God in Genesis 32, I will not let you go until you bless me. She held on to Jesus tenaciously, desperately, perseveringly as her only hope. And in so doing, she demonstrated for Jesus' watching disciples the nature of true faith, of saving faith that receives the blessing of God's mercy. But there was something else going on in this story that we did not really address in depth. When Jesus responded to the woman rather rudely in our mind, he was responding exactly as his disciples and every other Orthodox first century Jew would have responded. This is clear from Matthew's description of the disciples' reaction to her intrusion. Matthew 15.23 says, And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. See, the disciples did not regard this unclean, pagan, Gentile woman, this dog, as deserving of Christ's time and attention and mercy. And so, when Jesus informed her that his ministry was only directed towards Israel, toward the children and not the dogs, his disciples were neither surprised nor alarmed. Jesus' words were in keeping with first century Jewish convention, and it reflected their own thoughts regarding Gentiles. But as we noticed last week, Jesus had something else up his sleeve. And by the end of the encounter, the tables have been radically turned, and this unclean pagan Gentile woman is held forth before his Jewish disciples as an example of great faith, and she is made the recipient of his saving mercy. In addition to demonstrating to his hard-hearted disciples the nature of true faith, I believe not only in the encounter with this Gentile woman, but also in the entirety of his Gentile mission, that Jesus is illustrating for his disciples God's global purpose in extending mercy not only to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. See, the notion that God would include the Gentiles in his saving covenant and make them co-heirs along with the Jews of the promises made to Abraham, of the blessing of Abraham, that notion was utterly revolutionary and extremely controversial in first century Judaism. I want to illustrate 
the air that first century Judaism breathed from a story that takes place in Luke chapter 4 near the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus had returned from the Jordan River in his baptism back to his hometown of Nazareth, he was asked to read the scriptures in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So he opened the 61st chapter of the prophet Isaiah and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Every first century Jew understood Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, to be a messianic text. Yet, when Jesus made the astonishing claim that he, right there in their midst, he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, they spoke well of him. They marveled at his words. But then, Luke tells us, the atmosphere in the room began to shift. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up. Three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them, or Elisha rather, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these words, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Did you catch that? When they heard Jesus saying, I am the Messiah prophesied by Isaiah, they spoke well of him and they marveled at his words. When he said, do you remember how God's grace skipped over Israel and went to a Canaanite woman and skipped over Israel and went to a Syrian man? Suddenly they're filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So the Jews in Nazareth were willing to tolerate, at least initially, Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. But what the Jews at Nazareth could not stand, what filled them with wrath, was the notion that God's grace might pass them by and be poured out upon the Gentiles. That was what nearly got Jesus killed before his ministry even got off the ground. That was the kind of religious, racial climate in which Jesus' disciples were raised. Instead of the gospel being to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, the disciples were raised on this air of to the Jews first and to hell with the Gentiles. 
Therefore, if God's global purpose to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and to gather them into one body, the church was to be realized, Jesus' disciples needed to be reprogrammed. And that, I think, is the primary purpose of his one and only extended excursion into Gentile territory. It is true that Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's true, John 4.22, that salvation is from the Jews. It's true, Romans 1.16, that the gospel is for the Jews first. But after his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned these same disciples who were raised in this context and all who would come after them to take the gospel to all the nations. And so, even though during his earthly ministry, his focus was upon the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus needed his disciples to learn that he has other sheep which are not of this fold. And that he and they must go and get them also that they may be one flock under one shepherd. He has other sheep that are not Jews. Sheep like this Syrophoenician woman. Sheep like this deaf man in the Decapolis, and sheep like the 4,000 Gentiles who listened to him teach for three days without food. Now the question that I have is, should the disciples have recognized God's global purpose? Should they have known that God's grace was going to extend, that his Messiah was going to come, that his kingdom was going to extend beyond the borders of Israel and encompass all the nations of the world? Should they have known this, that God's plan all along was to redeem a global church from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Well, my answer is yes and no. The only reason I add no is because in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul calls the Gentile inclusion into the covenant people a mystery. Ephesians 3 verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I take this to mean that the full revelation of the redemptive purpose of God to gather into one body, into one church, all of the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation... A church in which there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, Galatians 3.28. A church in which all who are baptized into Christ Jesus are sons of Abraham by faith and are fellow heirs with Christ of the promises made to Abraham. This truth was not fully known to the sons of men in prior generations. But that doesn't mean that there were not glimpses of God's global purpose available for those who had eyes to see. It is evident in the call of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Note that last line. In you, Abraham, all the families, all the ethne, all of the ethnicities of the earth shall be blessed. There are no blessings outside of God's saving mercies. There is no blessing outside of God's covenant of grace. Therefore, if Genesis 12.3 is to be true, if all the families of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham, this can only mean that they will be gathered into Abraham's covenant family. So yes, there's a glimpse there in Genesis chapter 12. A glimpse of God's global purpose. This is certainly the way the Apostle Paul understood the promise. In Galatians 3, 7, he said, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God's global purpose is there. It's there in Genesis chapter 12. It's there in Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Yes, God's global purpose is there to see in the Old Testament. It's especially clear in the prophet Isaiah. In one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament with regard to this global design of God in his plan of redemption, Isaiah wrote these words regarding the coming servant of the Lord, the Messiah. Isaiah 49 verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So you tell me, is God's global purpose available to see in the Old Testament? Yes, it is. But racial racial prejudice and religious pride die hard, don't they? And they blind us to the truth. And Jesus knew that this would be the challenge facing the early church. I mean, you can see this issue arising, this issue of, are the Gentiles really included as equal heirs with the Jews? You can see it arising in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15, Romans 9 through 11, Galatians 1 to 4, Ephesians 2 and 3. We could go on and on and on. This was the issue. It nearly divided the church in Acts chapter 15. And it's because Jesus knew that this was going to be the issue that his disciples would have to face, that his disciples would have to solve, that he takes them on this Gentile mission in order to drive his point home. And the point is this. 
the gospel is for the Jews first, but also for the Gentiles. And that in Christ Jesus, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus and are heirs of the promise of Abraham made by faith. That's what these next three passages are about. Let me personalize it. I'm not aware that there are any ethnic Jews in our congregation today. Maybe. I'm just not aware of it. You heard Mike read in the beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 that before Christ came, you, we, we were without hope and without God in the world. Because of these three passages, because of God's global design, the gospel has come to us and we, Gentiles, are children of Abraham. That's what's at stake in these passages. We have a vested interest in these three paragraphs. So this morning, we're going to take a broad overview of Jesus' Gentile mission in order to see what they have to teach us about God's global redemptive plan. Now, we're not going to delve into the details of any one of these three passages uh, in, in great depth, and, I'm, and that's really for two reasons. Number one, we covered the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus' interaction with her last week in, in pretty great detail, and the next two passages are almost identical to passages that we've seen before. Jesus has healed a lot of blind and deaf people, and Jesus has already fed 5,000, but that's actually the point. The same miracles that Jesus performed for the Jews, he's going to turn around and he's going to perform for the Gentiles in the sight of his Jewish disciples. Meaning that the mission which Christ conducts among Israel will soon extend to the Gentile nations as well. So three truths this morning we can learn from these three encounters on Jesus' one and only Gentile mission. Truth number one. Jesus teaches his disciples that God's salvation extends to the Gentiles. I think this is the main theme of the first passage. Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. So let's read it one more time. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. I want you to note the very first sentence in this passage. From there, okay, from Galilee, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's startling in and of itself. Why would Jesus arise and leave Jewish Galilee and travel to pagan Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon if Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Well, there's two reasons for his journey. On the one hand, things have not been going so well in Galilee. 
By now, Jesus has spent nearly a year ministering in the regions of Galilee among the Jews. And though many have been healed and some have believed, by and large, he has been rejected as their Messiah and Savior. He came to his own and his own received him not. The Jewish leaders want to kill him. Herod wants him dead. The fact of the matter is that Jesus and his disciples could no longer stay there. So this desire to escape the mounting pressure that was upon him, at least for the time being, I think is evident in Mark's comment that he entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know that he was there. He's trying to ease up on the pressure that's constantly upon him in his building. But that's clearly not all that's going on in this interaction as the following passages demonstrate. Jesus doesn't have to heal this woman's daughter. Jesus doesn't have to restore hearing and speech to the deaf and mute man. Jesus doesn't have to teach the Gentile crowd of 4,000 for three days. He doesn't have to do any of these things, yet he does. Why? Because this is not just an escape. This is not just a private getaway. This is a mission trip. So John MacArthur writes this, quote, Though the Lord intended this trip for rest and private instruction for his disciples, he also knew of the divine appointment that awaited him. In fact, the planned encounter was a critical part of the apostles' training to be his witnesses. His meeting with the Gentile woman provided the twelve with a vivid example of true faith and a preview of what was to come when they would begin to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. All right, so Jesus is teaching his disciples Global gospel lessons. Well, what kind of lessons can we learn from this interaction? Two, I think. Number one, it taught his disciples that there's plenty of food to go around. There's plenty of bread for the dogs. In other words, God's mercy is not limited in terms of its quantity. God's mercy does not have to be rationed. When Jesus said to the woman, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, that could imply a rationing of God's blessing, as if God has only so much mercy, He has only so much time, He has only so much power, He has only so much compassion, we've got to ration it so that we can make sure that the children get their fill before we'll have any left over for the dogs. But the woman recognized the character of God. His omnipotent, infinite grace. If this Jesus is the Son of God, He's not limited in any way. And so she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Which was, of course, the right response. is the one that Jesus was drawing from her all along. You do not need to ration God's mercy. There is plenty to go around. There's enough for all who hunger and thirst for grace. The disciples needed to learn this, and so do we. God does not ration His mercy. Secondly, even the children will starve if they don't eat the bread. In other words, God's mercy and His blessing can be offered to the Jews all day long, but if they do not receive it by faith the kind of faith exhibited by this Gentile woman, they will die of starvation. See, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, 
Whether you were raised within the covenant people or you're a stranger outside. Whether you've been in church your whole life or you just came this morning to watch your kids sing. Whether or not you experience God's saving mercies doesn't depend upon your background. It depends on whether you partake of His mercies by faith. If you don't eat the bread, you'll starve. The disciples watched as over the course of a year, Jesus and the bread of life that he offered was rejected time and time again by the children of Israel. And then they watched as this Gentile woman ate her fill. There's a lesson to be learned here. Salvation depends not upon whether you are a child, a Jew, or a dog, a Gentile. It depends on whether you actually partake of the bread by faith. The next passage teaches us that God's compassion extends to the Gentiles. This is the point of Mark 7, 31-37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. This entire message rests upon the fact that all three passages this morning take place in Gentile regions among Gentile peoples. Now, where do I get that idea? Well, all three places mentioned in verse 31 are Gentile regions. The region of Tyre was to the north and west of the Sea of Galilee. It was located along the coast of the Mediterranean in a region formerly known as Phoenicia, or modern-day Lebanon. Sidon was 20 miles further north along the Mediterranean coast. And both Tyre and Sidon were famous, or maybe we would say infamous, for their paganism. In fact, Jesus uses those very two cities, Tyre and Sidon, right alongside Sodom, as well-known examples of wickedness when, a little bit later, he condemns the Galilean cities for their unbelief. He says in Matthew 11, "'Woe to you, Chorazin!' in Jewish Galilee. Woe to you, Bethsaida, in Galilee. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In other words, to the Jewish Galilean mind, Tyre and Sidon were not so different from Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Jesus goes there. The region of the Decapolis was located on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee in modern-day Jordan, meaning that Jesus took a 120-mile circuitous route through modern-day Lebanon, through modern-day Syria, 
spending as long as eight months in Gentile territory by some accounts, which is really strange for someone who was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, unless it's part of his mission. At any rate, the Decapolis was a region that contained ten city-states, hence the name, Deca, Ten, Polis, City. And these city-states were filled with pagan idolatry, temples to Zeus and Aphrodite and Artemis and Dionysus. So not only were Tyre, Sidon, and the Decapolis all Gentile territory, they were territory saturated in paganism. And so even though Mark does not explicitly say that the deaf man in Mark 7, 31 to 37, or the crowd at the beginning of Mark 8 were Gentiles, I think it can be reasonably inferred that this is the case. These are Gentiles steeped in paganism. And yet Jesus' compassion extends to them. So what do we learn from this healing of the Gentile deaf man? Well, what obviously sticks out about this passage is not so much that Jesus healed him or restored to him his speech and his hearing, but rather the manner in which he does so. It's so personal, it's so intimate, it's so tactile, it's so touchy. I want you to notice four components of this healing. It's private. Jesus gives this man his undivided attention. He, he draws him away from the pressing throng. This man had probably been thought ignorant his whole life because he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. He'd probably been the object of scorn in his community from the day that he was born. And so Jesus took him away from the eyes of the crowd to spare him any more shame. It's intimate. Jesus doesn't heal him from a distance. He doesn't keep him at an arm's length. He touches him. He puts his fingers in his ears. He, he spits on his fingers and he touches his tongue. Why does he do this when clearly he could have just uttered a word and, and his hearing would have returned and his tongue would have been loosed? I think he's communicating compassion and identity to this man. I, I feel your malady. I'm not going to pronounce healing from a distance so that I don't have to touch you, so that I don't have to get near you, so that I don't have to get messy in your disease. I feel your pain. I, I touch you. I enter into it. It is intimate, and it's compassionate. Mark says that Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs, which is a word that means he groaned with distress. He felt this man's malady. And finally, it was immediate. Jesus commanded his ears to open and his tongue to be loosed. Ephatha, be opened. And once again, his word created what it commands, and the man immediately heard and spoke plainly. Jesus then commands the man to silence, as with his previous miracles, and as with the previous times, the one who was healed can't remain silent. But they go and they proclaim Christ's power and compassion all around, which I think is why there's a huge crowd gathered around him at the beginning of Mark chapter 8. This healing left all of the Decapolis astonished beyond measure, says Mark, saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. The point of this miracle for his astonished disciples and us is that not only does God's salvation extend to the Gentiles, but so does God's compassion. 
His is not a, a grudging mercy. Though one may have gotten that idea from the previous passage until we unpacked it. His compassion is deep, his sympathy is real, his concern genuine, and his power limitless for everyone. He has done all things well, and he does things well for all. We're going to go to Cuba in three weeks. And to those that are on that team, I want you to think of this compassion mingling with his salvation for them. It is not just that that God doesn't want to send them to hell. He actually loves them. He loves them deeply and intimately and compassionately. And God feels the same way about your neighbor. And God feels the same way about your co-worker. And God feels the same way about your unbelieving family. He feels for them. And God feels the same way about you. The last point to make from these passages is that God's revelation extends to the Gentiles. And this is the point of verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to them and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the district of Dalmanutha. This account is very similar to the previous account of the feeding of the 5,000 and Mark chapter 6, but that they are different is clear from the obvious dissimilarities between the two, but also the fact that later on in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to reference them both, verse 17, as separate events. But the similarity of the two accounts does mean that we don't need to belabor the exposition of this passage. I just want to draw one main point. If you remember back to the feeding of the 5,000, the main point of that miracle was not that the people were physically hungry and Jesus gave them physical bread. That was not the main point. Mark 6.34 said, He went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them. Jesus performed a miracle that was very reminiscent of the provision of manna in the wilderness. Manna which Moses himself said was not the true bread of life, but was only symbolic of the word of the living God. Deuteronomy 8.3 And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the point in Mark 6 was 
These people are like sheep without a shepherd. I feel a deep compassion on them, and what they need more than anything is my word. And to show them how much they need my word, I'm going to give them bread so that they may learn to feed on my word as they feed on their bread for the nourishment of their souls as for the nourishment of their bodies. That was the point in Mark 6. The same point is here in Mark 8, which means that Jesus sees that the Gentiles need his word just as much as the Jews did. Jesus says this crowd for 4,000 has been with him for food without days. Three days of doing what? He's been teaching. They've been listening to him speak the word of God. And then he performs a nearly identical miracle in the sight of his disciples to prove to them, to show them that God's revelation, His Word, is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. They need the bread of life, the Word of God, just as much as the Jews do, and the Good Shepherd intends to feed them just like He intends to feed the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Good Shepherd has sheep which are not of this fold, and He will feed them too. Through whom? Through his disciples. You remember John chapter 21 when Jesus restores Peter to the apostolic ministry? What does he tell him three times? Peter, feed my sheep, not just the Jewish ones. In Isaiah 49, the servant of the Lord, the, the Messiah, speaks. He says, Listen to me. He bids, Listen to me. O coastlands, give attention, you peoples from afar. That's you. This morning, the Messiah bids you to listen and give him attention. He says, the Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother, he named my name. He's speaking to us this morning. What does he say? Verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus was made a light to the nations and his salvation reaches to the ends of the earth and that includes us. God's salvation is for you. God's compassion is for you. God's word is for you. The question is, will you receive it by faith? None of you here are natural children of Abraham, which means that you have no natural claim to the promises made to Abraham. You were in the condition that Paul says we were in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is good news this Christmas season. Christ Jesus was sent into the world for this purpose, to bring near those who are far off. In his context, that meant the Gentile nations, us. 
And so if you're here this morning and you're far off, you feel as if you're at the ends of the earth from the locus of God's mercies. You should take heart this morning because Jesus was sent into this world as a light to the nations that the light of Israel may shine to you. In Christ, you can become a child of Abraham. You can become an heir of his saving blessings. You can become the recipient of everlasting life and an everlasting inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what your lineage is or what your sins are. That's why Jesus took this eight-month sojourn through Gentile pagan, immoral territory. He saves people like that. And he wanted his disciples to learn that lesson and he intends for us to hear that message. He saves people like that. Are you immoral? He saves people like that. Have you worshipped false gods? He saves people like that. Are you an idolater? He saves people. People like that. Salvation, compassion, revelation. It's for you. So come. Come like the Canaanite woman. Desperate, tenacious, perseveringly. And he will not turn you away. That's why he's come.